everybody, Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. I'm talking to you from New York, from the East Coast. I am here, I was in Miami for a really amazing weekend, I have to say. One of my first forays out after two years of pandemic to speak about Israel, advocate for Israel, talk Torah, talk Israel, talk whatever. So I had a really wonderful weekend in Miami, spoke to Witsa women, spoke in a girl's high school, uh, was at the synagogue, the Shul in Bell Harbor, um, an afternoon at uh, at the Follicks, the family that brought me in, who are very deeply involved with Israel and everything they do. And uh, and then the afternoon, the, Reb- the Rebetzin of the synagogue gave me her, her slot for a Torah lesson. So it's been really wild. Uh, have I slept a lot? No, in case you're asking. Today, by the way, before I forget, May 2nd, 2022, already the second day of VR, 5782. Anyhow, now I'm in New York. I'm going to be in Englewood um, for the Shabbat, a one is off on Shabbat, got some meetings set up and all kinds of good things. So it's exhausting to be out, but it's also exciting. And hopefully the world is returning to whatever normal or new normal and, uh, crazy busy, but loving it and really, really miss doing this. But as you all know, I've been keeping up with my podcast, despite everything, and very happy to be interviewing tonight. It's already the evening here. Um, Maggie Anton, I debated doing, a show this week, um, either on Israel's Memorial Day, Yom HaZikaron, which starts tomorrow night, or Yom HaZikaron, Israel's Independence Day, which starts the next night. This is the first time since I moved to Israel in 1988 that I have not been Israel in Israel for those two days. It is extremely hard for me. Those are days that every there's a lot of togetherness, both in grief over the price we have paid for our country and in joy that is inexplicable for the country that we have. Um, and so it's very hard for me not to be there this week. So I decided that I almost didn't have the right to do a show on these two days when I wasn't actually in Israel, feeling the vibe and, uh, and, and a part of it. So next year, I will do my best to be in the land for these two days. And in the meantime, though, I found a wonderful replacement for a podcast today. Actually, I've been chasing her already for a few weeks because actually even longer, but now is the launch. This is where we're right on time. Maggie Anton, her, um, who I've interviewed before, some of you might remember, Rashi's Daughters, uh, Fifty Shades of Talmud. She never just picks like light things to talk about. And her new book coming out right now, The Choice, a novel of love, faith, and the Talmud. Maggie is in California. She's not a morning person, among other things. And so we worked at a time that was great for the both of us. Maggie, thanks so much for joining me here on Rejuvenation. It is my pleasure to uh, speak with you again, Eve. And I must, uh, I feel like I must remind you that, okay, we can't uh, observe or celebrate in person the uh, Israel holidays, but it's Rosh Hodesh. Oh, yeah. Well, now in New York, not anymore. But yeah, where you are still. According to my calendar, it's already uh, after dark. So and that is traditionally uh, a woman's holiday. Yeah, we're not supposed to work. So are you relaxing? Because I haven't exactly been relaxing. Uh, (laughs) Well, maybe it's only work if you get paid for it. I don't know. (laughs) Whatever it is. It's great. But anyway, so at least... uh, I mean, I know because I have a couple of Rosh Hodesh events. Uh, right, exactly. It's the new know. month of ER, the month. Um, there's no biblical holidays in this month, but there's a lot of other things that are going on. And of course, Lagba Omer. Uh, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But in the meantime, I want to focus on your book. Tell me. So, um, of course, I've read the book. 
uh, it's a very interesting book. You're going to definitely, you're definitely going to get some reactions from it. So, I mean, tell my listeners who haven't yet read it because it's not out yet. Um, what's the book about and what inspired you to write it? All right. Well, I'm going to start with what inspired me because that tells you or the, why, tells the right. listeners uh, why, uh, you know, something about the book. And for people who haven't heard me before, I must tell you that I never intended to be an author. I was I have a degree in chemistry from UCLA. Uh, I worked almost 40 years in clinical laboratories. It the furthest thing in my mind that I would ever write any kind of book. But I was a voracious reader of fiction. So in the late 1960s, I was I was in college at that time. Uh, somehow I came across the uh, duology of books by Chaim Potok, The Choice, and its sequel. My, my um, name is Asher Lev. No, that's no, not the that's uh, not name. The sequel. Nothing to do with each other. I don't. <laughs> heaven forbid they should get confused. Um, no, the the chosen and the and, promise. Yeah, they're the one where the what we would call modern Orthodox yeshiva student becomes friends with the Hasidic yeshiva student, and they study Talmud together, and they become friends, and it's uh, very much a coming-of-age friendship, relationship with father's uh, set of books. So I read those, you know, along with three, three million people, you know, right. I, <laughs> I fell in love with them. And because that was my introduction to Talmud. I, I was only like a teenager at that point. Mm-hmm. Who'd ever heard of Talmud? Uh, especially I grew up secular. So but, ah, okay, so I learned there was Talmud. I also somehow intuited that women didn't study it, but that wasn't on my mind at the time. Um, I was getting married. I, you know, started a family. And then, let's see, I guess like 20 years later, I read Chaim Potek's Davida's Harp, the only novel of his with the female protagonist. That he, he never wrote any more about, about her although I got the impression he wanted to. Anyway, so I read that one. And in the last uh, quarter of the book, I was quite astonished that who shows up in her Orthodox day school, but the attractive young protagonist of The Chosen. I think like, what is the guy Sky doing here? Is this a, at that point, I guess somehow I knew about what a, Chekhov's gun was that uh, the great playwright Chekhov warned other uh, writers and playwrights that if you put a gun up on the wall or visible in chapter one, it better go off by chapter three. Yeah. (laughs) And so I'm saying, why is this guy there? This is 20 years after that first one was written. What's he doing there? And they're like, you know, thinking the other one is attractive and stuff like that. So I was fully expecting a sequel where they would get together and mm-hmm. that would close the, uh, you know, shoot the shoot Chekhov's gun or close the book. In, in a nice whatever. way. Right, right. Yes. But it never happened. Uh, Potok died in 2002. Were you ever in touch with him? Did he ever know what an impact he had on you? No, uh, he didn't. But when they, JPS, or... Yeah, Jewish Publication Society, of which mm-hmm. she used to be the editor-in-chief, 
decided they wanted to do some young adult, which actually is like kids, uh, you know, nine to 14 year olds, but they call it YA young adult, uh, historical fiction for Jewish kids. And so um, they came to me to ask me to adapt Rashi's Daughters, the first volume. And my editor was none other than Rena Potok, Chaim Potok's daughter. Oh. And I have to back up a few years because Rashi's Daughters, of course, was already out. It was very successful. I was doing book tours. And as usual, when I was on tour, I don't like to stay in hotels. It's very lonely. And I meet nice people. So I was staying in somebody's house. Of course, being a Jewish house, there's books all over the place. Right. And I saw Haim Potok's books in the room that I was staying in. I thought, oh, you know, I think I'll check those out and read again. And as I read them, uh, you know, by then I'm full-fledged feminist. I'm going like, wait a second. What happened to the, where's the women here? Our, our hero, and I have to, I had to make up, a, I have to use different names for all these characters in my book. But so the protagonist, uh, the um, Orthodox or regular Orthodox guy, um, I'm calling him Nathan. And the Hasidic one, I'm calling him Benny. Right. So I'm going, okay, Nathan's mom died when he was young. We don't know of what or why. He, they never even mention her name. He doesn't say Kaddish for her. They don't visit the city. What, you know, like this woman doesn't exist mm-hmm. except to explain that she's not there. So that, that I found frustrating. And also the, uh, the Hasidic guy, Benny, his mother doesn't have a name either. And she has a minimal presence, even though in the Hasidic world, the Rebinson, the wife of the Rebbe, right. she is the one who deals with all the women. Mm-hmm. The Rebbe doesn't ever meet any women by themselves. She's, his wife is a very powerful, has a powerful position in that community. You wouldn't know that from reading uh, Potok's books. And as I said, she didn't have a name either. So I started thinking, and this is when I cannot explain how ideas for plots and books come into my mind. I just suddenly wake up in the morning thinking about these kinds of things. Or even worse, I wake up at four o'clock in the morning trying (laughs) to sleep and and I I think of these things. So the thought occurred to me, by this time, of course, I had read Davida's Harp that I thought, okay, I'm going to see if I can figure out how I can get the, the two of them together and how I could make a plot that involved all these nameless missing women. That's, you know, that's kind of my job to look at uh, women who have been neglected by Mm -hmm. by history. So I was thinking about it and tossing around all kinds of ideas. And then who should be my, uh, my editor for the kids book, which is Rashi's daughter's secret scholar published by Jewish publication society, but I am Potok's daughter. And I mentioned it to her that, you know, I asked her, did he write a sequel? Is there anything out there right. that, that he started? And she said, no. And I told her what I was thinking to do. And she thought it was a very interesting idea. And she actually gave me some pointers on where I could find short stories that he wrote that had these characters in it, including one that takes place when... Um, the, the girl is, is now a long married woman with a child in Harvard 
And who is she married to? A professor at JTS. Jewish Theological like Seminary. Yeah. The Theological Seminary in New York. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, okay, that actually kind of fits that she could have gotten together with the, the guy in the first book. Anyway, so I started uh, coming up with ideas, thinking about plots. How would I, uh, how would I work this out? And the characters would, you know, would not leave me alone. Mm -hmm. Even though Pengman, I had a contract, I had to write the Rob Hizda's duology, which, you know, and that took like five years. Right. And then somehow I got uh, sidetracked into writing Fifty Shades of Talmud. And that took a <laughs> couple of years. So, you know, we're, we're now talking like five years ago. And those characters are still driving me crazy. So I said, that's it. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to start writing. So I started doing research because I, I knew when my when the choice would take place. It would take place in the middle 1950s, well after uh, the, the Botox other books had uh, had completed their mm -hmm. their timeline. So I could be way and I wanted my characters to be old enough that they're adults. They're not teenagers. There's not kids. And so I could have an adult romance that is more my style of writing. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing research and I found at this point, as usual, some really surprising things about the women in New York City. Some, you know, some surprising things in the 1920s. And when I would be looking at the, the two missing mothers, what was their story? What was their backstory? And one of the most surprising, okay, of course, it wasn't surprising that women didn't study Talmud. That was, you know, we couldn't start, you know, wasn't supposed to study Talmud when I was studying Talmud. And that was in the 1990s. So certainly not in the 1920s. That would have been a little anachronistic if you would have had yeah. them studying Talmud in the 50s. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, but anyway, um, at this point, I'd say not only... Every, every, almost every Jew in America and plenty of non-Jews in America are aware of the OU Heksher mm -hmm. on, on food. The kosher. They're the kosher Heksher. And they're, you know, it's meat or it's parv or it's uh, for Pesach or, or dairy. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I have friends, non-Jews, who, who are vegetarian. And they look for that Heksher because when they see the D yeah. or the P, they know there is no meat right. in there. Right. So a lot of people follow the OU. For different sure. reasons, sure. Because yeah, if according to Jewish reason. law, there can't be meat and dairy mix, then anybody who follows those for not Jewish reasons can rely on that. Yeah. Right. And we have more and more people who don't eat meat these mm -hmm. days. And this way they can be sure. Right. So anyway... It turns out, where did that OU Heksher come from? And how did it get to be used by so many mainstream manufacturers? Right. Well, it happened in the early 1920s. And at this time, there were a lot of Eastern European immigrants uh, coming, especially like from Ukraine because of the wars there. Oh, a hundred years along and not much has changed, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, this time it's all the Ukrainians, not just the Jews. Yeah. Um, anyway, so some of those uh, 
uh, immigrants were rabbis, but they were Eastern European rabbis who were used to their community supporting them. Anyway, they get to America. Not only is there really no community to support them, but they're speaking Yiddish. And even, you know, and, and synagogues, even the Orthodox ones, they wanted more modern type rabbi than you would have got. So some of these Eastern European rabbis went into the Heckscher business for, for to make butcher, a living. Mm-hmm. To make a living. And frankly, some of them um, weren't so reputable, shall we say. I mean, we had a scandal in Los Angeles in the last, certainly in the last 10 years, where somebody was right. a, a kosher butcher was using regular meat. And yeah. anyway, that that's is this is still happening. But in yeah. those days, Hashrut is about trust. And that's the yes. bottom line, but that's a whole and, different and, issue. Yeah. And just yeah. because somebody's a rabbi doesn't necessarily make them more trustworthy than any, than any other Jew. Anyway, the, the Jewish mothers in New York in particular, is who we're talking about, were very frustrated because their children would keep saying, why can't I eat this? Why can't I eat this? Billy down the street eats this. Why can't I eat that? And some of the foods actually... Look, you know, they could be kosher if they could just get a hexer. So somehow, and I don't know the details, which allowed me, of course, to make them up. The the Orthodox Sisterhoods, um, they sent some some representatives to the big food companies, the big food manufacturing companies, and somehow convinced them that it would be in their interest to have this hexer, to to, um, participate with a bunch of other um, big manufacturers to um, to have somebody inspect their manufacturing plants and give them a hexer. And lo and behold, that's where the OU comes from. And now we just look for it, and nobody. It, I, right. I was astonished. Very that easy I also to find that. kosher food. Yeah, and they're everywhere. Yeah, and that was as far as I know. That was the first hexer, and for a long time, it was the only hexer. Mm-hmm. But um, so how it does this connect out. to your book? Because I had my uh, non-Hasidic. I had the modern Orthodox mother be the uh, the leader of that movement. So I get to put mm-hmm. in the uh, the history there and have her participating because we have no idea right. <laughs> who actually did. So that that was very interesting and. Another interesting thing I found, which turns out to be a major plot point in a conflict between the, my protagonist and the, between the male, the romantic couple, mm-hmm. is that during, from the time period up until perhaps like the 1970s, I don't know uh, at what point this happened, but back then, especially in the early 1900s, the mikvahs were... Um, well, to Ritual say they were unsanitary is right. putting it mildly. Right. The I actually have reports from the New York City Health Department when they inspected mm-hmm. them, which you know are not right. going to be encouraging. And so, what essentially happened is okay. New York City grandfathered in the old ones, which you know were like rusty iron tanks and the water came from cisterns on the roof and nobody cleaned them. Nobody would want to go in there for purifying reasons. Right. Right. If you were going to go in there for purifying, you would come home and use your own bathtub anyway Mm -hmm. to wash yourself. And at this point, indoor plumbing is becoming popular. 
women are using their own bathtubs or they're going to like the Russian bath, the Turkish bath, what my dad would have called the Schwitz. Or the hammam um, in the Middle East. Yes. <laughs> yes right. Yeah. And so they, they, not, they weren't going. And there was a disconnect because the older women, the mothers who would have taught their daughters about this stuff before they married, the older women had stayed in back in Eastern Europe and the younger women are here. So you have mm-hmm. a break in the tradition being passed on by women. And believe me, rabbis were not telling pre, doing premarital counseling to mm-hmm. explain this kind of stuff. They had these various mikvah manual books. I have a collection right. of them. We should just interject for those who are a little lost now. In Orthodox Judaism, there is a very strong halacha to um, after a woman either gives birth or menstruates, um, she has to go to a ritual bath, a mikvah, before she can resume relations with her husband. But what happened, I mean, now in modern times, it's something that's completely different. But what happened for a long time is that these ritual baths were not something that anybody who didn't want to get hepatitis or I don't know what would go <laughs> into. And um, there were there was a, there was really a large gener- I, I would say many women of the generation, even though those who consider themselves Orthodox had come from the shtetls either before the Holocaust, after the Holocaust, who didn't go, <laughs> who said they were going or didn't go or just a, a large generation that didn't go this this whole kind of reawakening of the last maybe 30, 40 years of even building ritual bath before you build a synagogue, when you have a Jewish community, because you can really pray anywhere. I mean, it's nice to have a, a beautiful synagogue and pay homage that way. But this idea that you need to put in the mikvah, because if you want to have families, this is one of the laws, what's called family purity. It's a very, very big part of Judaism. Anyway, so that's kind of the back, the backdrop to a lot of what your book is about as well. Because you catch yes, indeed, right yeah, at this use, time period. I use this as a, um, a source of the conflict between, so the choice is focused on two couples. We have the main couples who are the, um, the two that were attracted to each other in their day school. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the one who becomes a, a yeshiva Talmud professor, except he's teaching um, Talmud, you know, Talmud criticism pointing right. out that there are various texts and various right. uh, different varieties of texts. And Definitely so that, not your mainstream Talmud teacher. For well, nowadays, actually, even the Orthodox right. accept this. But back right. then, that was uh, that got him in trouble when he was a student. Mm-hmm. And it continued to be <clears throat> certainly edgy stuff that he was teaching. And my heroine, she works for a commie. She's a works for a communist Yiddish newspaper, mm-hmm. even though she's in an Orthodox home, uh, she's, she's not quite as religious as uh, some Orthodox women might have been, certainly mm-hmm. not like Hasidic. So anyway, the two of them get together. That's our, that's our romance. She comes to interview him. Is she and, you, may I ask? Did you put yourself in, her, in that character a bit? She's sort of me. Mm-hmm. She's more was, like me than the other one. I was what sure. I was wondering. I mean, she's a writer, also. She's a journalist. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes, and I, frankly, I grew up in a secular communist household mm-hmm. too. So I, right, okay. But I never, I never got. I mean, my um, my father lived to be ninety four. Mm-hmm. I had, I never went into an orthodox uh, household. Right, uh, but I certainly learned enough. Uh, and it turns out my, you know, my son and daughter in law are from. So there, she's orthodox. as good as it. 
Interesting. Um, okay. She's American now, but she. Right. Uh, so anyway, yes, I definitely knew that world. I knew that newspaper. My grandmother read it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, and as I said, I attended, uh, I didn't attend religious school. I attended Kinderschule, which was put on by the Workman's Circle people. So I do have that background myself. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so she's an ex, uh, she's not particularly a communist. She enjoys her, her Orthodox day school better. It's a better school than when she was in the public schools. She likes the singing at services. Her mother is, is also on the liberal end, uh, does a Torah study with other women. And my heroine, when she was in day school and the boys went off to study Talmud while the girls studied Proverbs and Psalms, asked, you know, I want to go study Talmud. And she was mm-hmm. told girls can't or girls don't study it. So let's face it, all you have to do is forbid something and it becomes much more <laughs> Absolutely. attractive, right. which is exactly why I studied Talmud when Rachel Adler started a woman's Talmud class. Mm-hmm. So I jumped at the opportunity to find out what is these forbidden texts and heaven help me. I'm now still studying Talmud. That was in the 1990s. So but now it's acceptable. You're not a rebel anymore, Maggie. There's well, a lot of women way. studying Talmud. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, Drisha was started in 1974. Yeah, I mean, sure. A, You'll have to you find know, something else now. to rebel against. Okay, good. Oh yes. I had to find something else. And I actually admit I have been I have immersed in a mikvah, but not for for the I did it before um, the high holidays. It's, mm-hmm. it's a tradition right. also right. to immerse. And right. so our synagogue New uh, Beginnings, yeah. Had a field trip. And my daughter immersed before she got married, even though she'd been living with him for six years. <laughs> It, look, it's also as any kind of going into water, it's new beginnings. I mean, that's a whole yes, discussion. Exactly. The Christians take baptism with that. We could talk about going through the Red Sea, right? The parting of the sea and Joshua coming into Absolutely. the land and Noah's flood. There's a lot of examples of water being renewal. Right. And a lot of a lot of women Perth, right? that are, you know, are, use it when, um, you know, after they've had a mastectomy. Mm-hmm. or after a miscarriage kind of and like a because, closure also yeah and also to make right. to renew you there's a cleansing there's a feeling that you come out as a as a it's new a spiritual kind of renewal exactly. yes exactly so right. mikvahs are getting more popular all the time and not and, just and much cleaner and more hygienic oh so no, are you kidding it's like a, the one in los angeles like a, they're like spas like yeah. <laughs> quite but anyway so the, so i made mikvah use the conflict between um, uh, between Nathan, the the Talmud professor, and Hannah, my my heroine, because she doesn't want to use those kind of mix. I mean, she goes into one of she goes to immerse once, and she can't bring herself right to, to go in, stick her toe in. And there were women who lied. They told their husband they were going oh, to yes. the ritual bath, and they didn't. They you right. know, and took a shower at someone's house, came home wet, and that was it. Right. 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 And I'm sure many women who actually did go to the mikvehs would have showered or wa- or bathed at home as soon as they got home. I mean, mm-hmm. you would you, you would right. not uh, stay in that condition anyway. So I have to have a conflict between the two couples. So, OK, mikvehs is, is the big one for uh, for my main couple, but also for the Hasidic guy, Benny, he marries a totally non-Hasidic woman. 
in, right. in Potex books, I'm a conservative even. And I knew that's not going to, there's going to be a lot of conflict there. Her, the community is not going to accept her. And I did a whole lot of reading and research into women's lives, in uh, ascetic women's lives. And there has been a lot lately. You know, there's a lot of off, off the Derek books about, you know, unorthodox and ex-orthodox. And mm-hmm. then we got Schissel and we have, you right, know, but I would say still the majority of women stay in the, I mean, those are the ones. That oh, no, absolutely. But, you, but the majority of women guess, do stay with that lifestyle. Yeah. But that's not yeah, interesting. But a, it so was a window a into how it. they lived. Right, right. And so um, that was that got me into the subplot with the Hasidic psychologist. And Potok made him a, a, a Hasidic child psychologist at the end of mm-hmm. the promise. So I didn't change that. But I, um, oh, another thing that I was able to do, there was overwhelmed with research. The entire New York Times going back to the 1880s is online, every single issue, and you can search them. Wow. So that that was that's what you did. That was really <laughs> that's intense. Wow, that's but intense. Yeah. So but the thing was, just like in the um, Catholic Church, um, the uh, Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox have the same problem with child molestation where you mm-hmm. have a, a hierarchy, a patriarchy where nobody challenges the leadership and they can right. get away with all of this. Right. There was a big, I mean, Yeshiva University themselves had, had, had a, uh, a mm-hmm. child abuse scandal, like in the 19 recent, I mean, recently compared to Jewish I've history. done a couple shows on it, unfortunately, in the last year, because a lot of things. Oh, yeah, that, right. Now. There's these guys yeah. in Israel. Yeah, yeah. And so I had just, I decided, okay, if you have a Hasidic child psychologist, these, these people, these patients, these children would make good patients for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a likely thing that would, uh, maybe that would send a child that would cause Hasidic parents to send a child to not that they would know why the child was suffering. They would just see that a change of personality in that. So, so that I gave that, uh, I used that as the um, plot point for their, his um, growth and change Mm -hmm. and, and, and what kind of a plot is there. And so that we're following along how he's going to deal with that and how he's going to, deal with his father, the Rebbe, who, like most of the Rebbe's, you know, want to pretend like it's not happening or we're, we're not going to mm-hmm. look at it. So anyway, that that's a subplot that. Uh, yeah, that you I cover wrote. a lot of topics in this book. Well, yeah, a I, lot of I, there's a lot of and stuff. And it's going. actually I mean, it, it's you're very blunt on on a lot of, you know, even sexual topics and things like that. I should warn people. Um, yes, because the, two of the two of the yeah. subplot, one of them involves mikveh use, which mm-hmm. back then is for right. You know, you can't, uh, you're not supposed to have sex with your husband if you haven't gone in the mikveh. Mm-hmm. So there we have that, mm-hmm. and then we have the child abuse in the uh, right Hasidic world. So yes, there is uh, definitely mm-hmm. a, a, what they called uh, mature content. Yes, when I have to, you know, put my book on some. Uh, you know, list or whatever. Goodreads mm-hmm. doesn't have, you know, I have to check off mature content mm-hmm. uh, box. And that's 
right. you know, but come on, we're, we're mature. I mean, I'm, come on, I'm 72 years old. Mature. <laughs> you can write whatever you want. Exactly. But let me ask you, because the title is intriguing. You know, the title is The Choice, the novel of love, faith, and the Talmud. What's the choice that you're referring to? There are many choices. There's the initial choice where my where our, our heroine Hannah gets up the nerve to tell Nathan as she's interviewing him because he's the first PhD at the yeshiva mm-hmm. um, that she in order to write this article about him, she needs to know something about Talmud to describe his controversial methods of teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, and he's taken aback, of course. And he says, well, you know, I can't just teach you Talmud in, in an hour. Um, but, and she's very disappointed. And he goes home and he starts thinking about it and decides, I mean, of course there's an attraction Right. between them immediately and of course come on, i've already told you love in the you know, <laughs> in the title. You, you you know after the first chapter how this book is going to end or at least mm-hmm. what's going to happen all, along the line so he he decides okay it's like february or january or something he says okay i will teach her some talmud up and you know for the few weeks until pesach and we'll study tractate pesachim about the Seder, you right. know, she goes to a Seder, two Seders every year. Anyway, this is nothing new. And Halakha is edgy about whether women can study the parts of Talmud that will enable them to perform the mitzvahs and certainly mm-hmm. all the holiday ones. And Pesach in particular requires a lot of work right. from women. So that, and that's actually the start of my not so stealth Right, exactly. Reasoning in this book, because by this point, I know all the pieces of Talmud that impact women for good or for bad. I've I've studied those for a zillion years, particularly Mm -hmm. five years studying in a woman's Talmud class with Rachel Adler. Right. And so this time I thought, okay, instead of just picking Talmud pieces at random for Rashi to teach his daughters, Mm -hmm. I'm going to lay out like, a course. And we're going to start with easy ones because, uh, and then work on up to more complicated and more mm-hmm. perhaps upsetting or distressing uh, ones for women, because there's been a whole lot of changes. And one of the talks I'm doing these days, because it is during the Omer, is that women Period between Passover and Shavuot. Right. right. And where you, you know, everybody... Counts well, you're supposed to, you know, count the Omer. It takes like what two minutes or something. It's one of the easiest mitzvot. Well, I mean, it's actually it's actually something that's very, very tense time for the farmers in Israel. Yes. Because it's the harvests are coming, the weather is changing, you don't want the hail, yeah, you don't want rain, the wave, you don't want the rain. It actually, uh, when you're really connected to the land, it has it has a very, very different meaning. Then just taking the two minutes before you go to sleep at night and say today is whatever. Yeah, well, you know, Los Angeles or New York, you know, right. you're, it's, you're all, so it's a whole different experience in Israel. Right. Just about everything is. But look, I don't want to give the book away because we want people to read it. But uh, I'm asking you as, you know, someone who didn't see herself as an author and now finds herself rather a prolific author. <laughs> do you know where, you, where, well, I don't know in general your books, but this book, let's say, where it's going to end when you start writing it or just kind of 
evolves with you. Like you start writing the characters, you start developing the characters, and then it kind of takes a life of its own. Or when you sit there, you've already got, you know, the last chapter is already written in your head. Oh, no, I do not have the, I, I follow it along. My characters in the middle, you know, it's like they're on their own here and I'm just uh-huh. following them. And it's still, I do not understand how my brain works, that it comes up with this creative stuff cool. that all of a sudden I'll be, as I said, you, I'm most creative first thing in the morning. I'm not a morning person because I don't get out of bed for however long it takes for my brain to, you know, and I'm writing things down and remembering, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I got to put this in or this would be really neat. And so the plot advances. Some things I know are going to happen. I was not aware that the child sexual abuse was going to be a plot point. I just, I, that was when um, I I read a book by a Orthodox woman um, who wrote it under a pseudonym. The book is called Hush. Mm -hmm. And it focused on, on that. And I, and that's where I was thinking, oh, now that's something that my Hasidic child psychologist would be able to use Mm -hmm. his, uh, you know, he wouldn't just be teaching at Columbia. So there was that. And I didn't have any idea of making mikvah to be the source of conflicts, except that I'm reading this book about the history of Jews in New York city. Mm -hmm. And that's when I found out about the, the OU Heckscher which right. I knew immediately, boo. And as soon as I read that, it's like, that's it. That's what uh, Nathan's mm-hmm. mother is going to be involved in. Mm-hmm. And um, cool. it took me a while to find some hook to put onto the, uh, the Rebbitson. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was. Um, and then you have another strong female character, this aunt. Uh, oh, that aunt. Who's, yes. uh, that, she was a fascinating character as right. well. And, and, right. And uh, Kotak had created her. She was already a uh, nurse um, going, you know, working in uh, as a missionary or a missionary nurse in war-torn countries. Mm-hmm. She'd already been. So she was like set up that of ha- course. Has this family been in touch with you? Like, yes. do they know that you essentially wrote a sequel I mean, yeah, because, okay, yes, I have been in contact with the daughter for Uh on and off for years, but um, it's the, but eventually the daughter could not convince her mother to give permission, the widow. And as a matter of fact, they, they, you know, they. For what? To write an official sequel? Yeah, Uh to to have an authorized sequel. Uh-huh. And so okay. we're not, we don't call it a sequel. I've been right. working with a, uh, um, a literary uh, copyright attorney, mm-hmm. uh, one of the best in, in, in this country. Right. And he guided me on exactly how to write this. I already knew I was going to change the names. You can't right. have a book with three Davids. You know, I mean, I had to, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Right. So, but I used names for my family. So nobody's, you know, any of my family members that, that, that wanted to complain they could take it up with me, but I didn't want to use anybody real. Right. In the world. Would you suggest that it would enhance the reader's experience of reading this book if they read Potok first? I would think so, but I don't know. I wrote it so that it stands alone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wouldn't, uh, a matter of fact, okay. I mean, this part doesn't need to go in there. I mean, the Potok family, you know, hired lawyers to shut me down. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had written it so well to protect, you know, like the, I don't know if you've heard of the wind done gone, which was oh. written, um, as 
a, a commentary and criticism of the Gone with the Wind. They wrote The Wind Done Gone from the Black mm. point of view of the slaves. Wow. And Margaret Mitchell's estate sued them uh, and lost. And mm. then they, it, it went far up the legal chain where there was a decision that you can use a copyrighted work uh, for commentary, for criticism, you're changed, made enough changes. And this is fair use. You're educating, you're, you're not just mm -hmm. stealing the characters. And, and Right, right. So anyway, oh. so I wrote it with a copyright attorney looking over what I was doing and advising me. Okay. So I, I felt so, pretty confident. So we've got that on record. Okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, they have, they, you know, they didn't sue me when, when they, good. when my attorney contacted their attorney and said, you know, explain the situation. I did a few things like, you know, change some names of people or, mm -hmm. you know, some small stuff that was easy to do. Right. So I did that, but by and large, the major plot points and mm -hmm. uh, I, I kept the same. I mean, there was no reason to keep the same names or any kind of name. Right. That they, but it, that it obviously did. inspired you to write this book. I mean, it's a big. And that's what we call it. Yeah, we call it inspired by. Right. We don't call it a okay. sequel. We don't call that it works. fan fiction. Uh, people who are reviewing my book are entitled to call it whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And some of them do call it that. Mm -hmm. But for me, they're uh, inspired by. And somebody used another word that I, I liked. But mm -hmm. uh, Okay. But that was that was the point. I was trying to bring it, and I have all these characters that don't even exist in his books. You know, right. the mothers. The I mean, I would see it as a big flatter as flattery. I don't know. I've never been in that position that that his books were you know so impactful on you. That oh, you yes. end up you know writing a book uh, to kind of see where it all goes. And, <laughs> and you would think, especially in this day and age, okay, let's visit. My kids are in their forties. They have never read his books. And yeah. so there's the possibility, you know, they're not going to harm Heim Potok's legacy. If anything, no, it will open all. a door for people who never had read these. Yeah, read that's it. what I'm thinking. That I'm sure that there's people listening to this interview who had never heard of Chaim Potok, who now might be curious as to. Right. And I wouldn't say they should necessarily out. read his first. You don't right. need you don't need right. anything. Right. And I want to get back to the to the um, the nurse the aunt, mm -hmm. because she had been a nurse in all these war zones, mm -hmm. it was only natural that she would be in the army during World War II. They drafted every nurse. Right, sure. get. And then after she sees all the refugees and she's a Christian, it's only natural that she would have gone to Israel for those first five years working. Help. Right. And I love doing that research on yeah. the Israel in the early 1950s and right. Yemeni and all the Iraqis. And, um, yeah, so I that, found that fast. I mean, obviously, as an Israeli, I found that fascinating as well. The book is set in America, but that was a really nice little piece of it for me. Right. And of course, everybody, the Jews in America are really watching what's going on there. Sure. I mean, I was looking up all the history. Oh, the COS Canal thing is that. <laughs> that's when they found the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. There was right. all kinds Great of interesting stuff stuff that I could, uh, you know, use it as part. And I, I needed the ant in the book anyway, because it's clear that Hannah is the heir to her father's, he may, he may have been disinherited by being a communist, mm -hmm. but 
the the aunt wasn't right his sister wasn't and the sister never had any kids and nobody else survived so my heroine would be the heir to this estate which is a little ironic considering that she starts off as some kind of communist it's because communist. she ends up with a whole lot of material wealth at the end. Oh, yes. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm used to that irony uh, yeah. in that, okay, my father was, uh, you know, if not an absolute communist, he was close to it. Mm-hmm. He was a, um, he couldn't get a job uh, in the 50s because he wouldn't take the loyalty oath. Really? Wow. And so he and another friend of his who was a real card-carrying communist, um, somehow they came up with the idea that they're going to form a pharmaceutical company and produce vitamins. Back in the early 1950s, like who would ever heard of vitamins? Right. You know, nowadays you go to a health food store and there's Oh, wealth. everybody takes vitamins, right. Nowadays, but back then not. So they started this company um, and they didn't call it Anton Pharmaceuticals. They called it Brown Pharmaceuticals because that was the other guy's name. Mm-hmm. And it became extremely successful. <laughs> I actually worked in one of those pill factories during my, when I was in high school. And the interesting thing, the, the whole um, misogyny and uh, patriarchy showed up in, in my life in that I was, as a chemist originally, I went to school as a chemist. I had great wonderful grades. I got a science award in my high school. Well, that's, and that's helpful if your family owns a pharmaceutical company. You would an think in-house so. chemist, right? Right. Well, I didn't, I couldn't get into Caltech because they didn't accept women. Really? Wow. That's what the counselor told, you know, I, she said, well, you know, UCLA, they're, they're good too. And <laughs> when it came time that the big pharmaceutical companies noticed, whoa, vitamins are getting popular in this little, little first, you know, teeny tiny pharmaceutical company in Los Angeles has the patents to all the making vitamins. It never occurred to me or to my father that I should come into business and take it over. He realized he was going to have to retire. He didn't have a son to take over the business. He had a daughter with a degree of chemistry. And anyway, it turned out fine. He sold out to big pharma. Okay. uh, And, uh, and you're writing so you, books. Yeah. So go figure. Yeah. <laughs> well, so anyway, it's going to take you. This, this yeah. ex-communist did very well. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Crazy stuff. Yeah. Maggie I mean, Anton, thank is, you. This just as, you know. Yeah. Real life can be just weird. as strange as fiction. Yes. And especially yes. these days where it's, I think, oh, even stranger. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> some of the things that we would imagine. Oh. Where can people get your book? Okay. Several places. You can get the, the print one in the usual, you can get them in your regular bookstores. You right. can order it. You can get them off of Amazon and uh, <coughs> Barnes and Noble, the usual place, you know, those mm-hmm. kind of places. You can get them on IndieBound. If you go to my website, uh, thechoicenovel.com, there's, there's buy buttons to take you to those places. Okay. But for most of my novels, they're up to like 50% sales of e-versions the ebook uh-huh and i'm encouraging people you don't have to go to kindle you don't have to go to nook there's a website called payhip which i had never heard of payhip yeah one word well p-a-y-h-i-p p-a-y-h-i-p.com okay yeah and heard of it. 
my ebook is on there as well as 50 shades of Talmud. I uploaded it myself because I have the rights to it and the money goes straight to me. There's nobody that takes their cut. Uh-huh. Okay. So I will encourage people to, uh, cut out the little guy. Okay. Yeah, cut out the little guy. And also, okay. I'm not supposed to sell books before the pub date, but between you and me and all your listeners, mm-hmm. you know, the e-version of the choice is it's already up, available. Is cool. there is available there at all right. uh, well, many of my listeners, down. many of my listeners are non-Jews. Do you think they would be interested in the book? Because it's very heavily, it's got a lot, you know, it's very much dealing with the Jewish world. I, I, I would world. say so. Well, who watches Schnitzel? Who watches right. all these And books? a lot of these characters, I think, could easily be repeated in other cultures and other religions as well. Right, right. The, right. the problem the of, of, of patriarchy, of keeping women in the dark and uneducated about their religion Mm-hmm. And in particular, you know, the, the bottom line is women being forbidden to study Talmud means they don't know how Jewish law and halakha is established. They're in no position to challenge it. Mm-hmm. I, I, take, I put the words in my, in my character's mouth. It's a matter of power. Mm-hmm. If the, you know, if the women ha- are uneducated, they're not in a position to challenge. Right. right. And so, you know, that's the... the you know, there's a lot of big changes in in Judaism as far as women's uh, position. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly, you know, we got women rabbis now. They don't know what to call them. But, you know, mm-hmm. they can't agree on that. But definitely there's women rabbis. Right. Um, and a lot of very learned women. By a lot of title very learned they call women. themselves. Absolutely. The, the women are wearing tzitzit. I mean, they're wearing uh, talus. They're wearing... Mm-hmm. You know what's typically thought of as the men's stuff, but no, the you know women wear right. them, and women are can do any of well, almost any of the mitzvot that are normally mm-hmm. done by men. Um, we're not; uh, they don't have right. to. They, they we don't have to worry about shaving our, our not shaving our beard or something. <laughs> women are allowed. Not. No, we're not going. We're definitely not going for that one. Yeah, I'll I'll pick another. Right. But by and large, women can do <laughs> all of the ritual obligation as men. The main problem for women that they're still stuck with, and it's not that there isn't a solution, is the inequality in marriage. I mean, you see it in Israel, the problem a lot that, you know, if that uh, a woman can't divorce her husband, no matter if he's left her, no matter yeah. what situation is, she can't divorce him. Even though back in Rashi's time, we have in the Cairo Geniza that women wrote gets to their husband. Yeah. You, you can see them in there. That right. women had the ketubot were real. The marriage legal contracts. Documents. Right. Contracts right. that were individual and plenty of yeah. them. Well, we, we've got right we've got what we've got what to do. Things are changing, yeah. and uh, there's a lot more awareness of a lot of different issues. That's going to have that, to be that's one of for my time. points of my of right. my book is to right. make people, women, aware and men, aware of these. Uh, right, right. Uh, and then we all choose the battles that we wish to fight. <laughs> exactly. I, I chose my battle by writing this book and educating. Okay. Uh, my readers about and you. Uh, I'm sure you will definitely get some interesting feedback on the book. Oh, oh well, yeah, I got really interesting feedback on Rashi's As daughter. I was reading things, like, ah, she's going to hear about this one. Ah, she's going to hear about yeah. that one. I <laughs> so I hope you're ready for it. Rashi's daughter, somebody sent me a postcard saying I'm going to roast in hell for oh writing gosh. this. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, because they right. didn't want to return address on it, right? So they sent me a yeah. post. Yeah, I oh, saved it. Terrible. All right, look, once you're a public persona, then with opinion, with strong opinions, then you open yeah, yourself we'll to see. that. But it we'll seems to me, happen. Maggie Anton, that you can handle it. So I want to thank I, you very much. So. Yeah, I want to thank you very much for continuing to, you know, wake us up on a lot of different issues and uh, and for your books. And I, I'll get you for the next one. All right. However long it takes, we'll be back. So I don't know how long it'll take, but I'm doing right. research on it already. So, okay. Well, take your vitamins right. and then you'll be around for a long time. So, right. All right. And <laughs> speaking too. of which, I hope whoever's listening, wherever you are, you are well and getting back to normal life and, uh, and getting back to Israel one of these days too. We're waiting for you. Um, oh, I want to thank. I uh, will, we're planning yeah. Israel trip. Okay. For next Good. summer, because my second oldest grandson is being bar mitzvahed, Mazalto. and he wants to do one of those Israel bar mitzvah. Beautiful, tours. nothing better, nothing better. Okay, so I to be there next summer. All right, fabulous. I want to thank Tabitha and Ben, and uh, and of course Maggie Anton and all my listeners. And uh, I hope I'll do a show next week. I'm not even sure where I'm going to be. But we'll continue to crank these out. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Take care, everybody, and goodbye for now. Take care care of yourself and be well. As the masks are coming off and much of the world is turning not only against Israel, but yes, against the Jewish people. If you feel different, if your love for Israel is growing deeper, and stronger, if you're thirsting to cleave to the nation of Israel and to the God of Israel, if you're thirsting to learn authentic Torah from Jews in Judea, then the Land of Israel Fellowship is for you. Hundreds of individuals and families from around the world come together on Zoom every week in what can only be described as a fellowship of love, friendship, of learning and praying and belonging a fellowship really unlike any other. It's more than just a movement, it's a family. To learn more about the Land of Israel Fellowship, click on www.thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship, or send an email to fellowship at thelandofisrael.com. Love and blessings from Judea.